Well, we're working our way through uh, the book of Colossians, and if you have a Bible with you, I'd get you to open up to chapter 2, and we're going to spend some time kind of digging around in uh, verses 6 through 15 this morning from Colossians chapter 2. To get us started this morning, um, we are kind of 12 weeks away from Old Home Week, and uh, just a little shameless plug. Uh, And for those of you that are kind of like new to PEI, like... This is as good as it gets. This is like, I love this week for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but it's uh, 11th of August to the 19th. It's seven, eight days of this giant citywide carnival. There's a giant petting zoo. Uh, there's livestock and horse shows, which really are quite something to go watch that all unfold, pr- quietly praying that the horse goes nuts. Like, that's what I go, like, waiting for... The horse just to disobey. That's what I go for. Uh, There's a a gold cup and saucer uh, kind of race at the end of the week. And this is also true of you Islanders that I picked up early. The moment the race is over, winter is here. (laughs) The moment it's over, like depression just sets in, snowsuits come out. I'm like, it's it's only the middle of August. And you're like, winter's here. And it just gets very weird very, very fast. Some of the best musical talent from around the East Coast is here performing kind of all week long. Um, There's food trucks everywhere, which is marvelous. Like, you can eat from all the countries of the world right here in Charlottetown, all on Victoria Row. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Buskers are from all over. There's a parade, which is amazing. Uh, Like, I, I think the Masons own four miles of the parade where they drive around those carts and all that stuff. And then there's a marching band and a Nemo fish that looks sick, and then that's the parade. Like, that's kind of it. But it's amazing. Like, this is the whole thing. Uh, and, and I'm on the tourism uh, kind of promotion team. Uh, but the, the gemstone of it all is the exhibition. This is like everything kind of revolves around the exhibition. And here's what you need to know if you've never been to this before. When you arrive, you will go and pay like a fee to get into the park. And if you have a family, that's a, that's a substantial fee. Um, and then when you get into the exhibition, do you know what your admission fee got you? Nothing. <laughs> to walk in and stare at everybody doing stuff, and you're like, well, well, how do I get on that stuff? How do I get to participate in all that stuff? And you realize quickly that that $8 million that you spent to get in <laughs> literally gets you nothing once you're in except to walk in and observe everybody having a great time. And then you're like, can I have a hot dog? And you're like, $9. And then that's when my mom, who was amazing, um, she would pre-cook hot dogs and put them in a thermos. So I thought, I thought it was amazing. You think it's gross. Uh, but it saves a lot of money when you have a lot of kids. And you're like, I'll fool you pull out the thermos, hot dogs come out, ready to go. And you save all kinds of money. But everywhere you go inside the exhibition, you go to a ride, that's nine tickets. Well, 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 what do tickets cost? And you go over and it's like 20 tickets for $20. And I'm like, I don't think this is a good deal. But anyway, I'm here and you gotta do that. Like everything that you thought you were going to get when you go in, you don't get any of that. You have to go and get more stuff, more payments, more this, more that to participate in all that is going on on the inside of that exhibition grounds. Now, believe it or not, that dynamic that's very much 
at play in what Paul is addressing in the church of Colossae. There's this, there's this theme of you're in, but you're not really in. You're here, but you really can't participate in all that's unfolding inside the community of faith. And we see this in a couple fancier ways that I've just described it. But it's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Here, here's the line that Paul's describing that's unfolding in the church of Colossae. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In verse 11, I'll explain this in a moment because you're like, I, I still don't see it. I'll explain it in a moment. In verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with circumcision not performed by human hands. Paul is addressing a culture in Colossians, but it's also true in Ephesus, it's true in Corinthians, it's true in a lot of the churches where you're in, but you're not really in because there's something else that you need to do. There's something else that you need to participate in. Paul is speaking in this letter to a group of people, and some of you, this would be your story. You're relatively new to faith. You're new to a community of faith, and you have come to follow Christ by faith, and then you're, you go to church. You, you join um, a, a community of faith, and then when you arrive, you think that you're, you're good. You think that you're welcome. You think that you can participate in what's unfolding and then all of a sudden, you quickly realize that you have to buy more stuff or participate in other things to really belong. And this is a dynamic that the early church really struggled through. There was a group of people called the Judaizers that, yes, they, quote, unquote, loved Jesus, but they were quickly to revert back to things of the law to really show that you belonged to what was unfolding in the life of the church. People walk in. And everyone on the inside is like, welcome, 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 welcome. But now that you're here, we want you to go and, and not eat this and not drink that. Or welcome, 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 welcome. I want to go see like the lead elder because they're in the back corner of the lobby and that's where circumcision is going to unfold. And, and that was like a thing in the early church where people were convinced to do this after they had made decisions of faith to follow Jesus Christ. There's this sense of welcome, 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 welcome. And then when you walked in, you quickly were aware that there are a whole bunch of other rules that that's what made you really welcome and to participate in what's unfolding in that community of faith. This is the dynamic that Paul is speaking to. And next week, where we're going to talk about some of the very things that I've just mentioned, but that's this weird church culture that Paul's speaking into. Yes, you can get in and you're welcome. It's, it's quote-unquote free. But once you're in, you realize, oh, not free. There's other things that you're going to require of me to participate here in this place. While Paul is highlighting this, he is at the same time correcting a belief or a practice that's unfolding in the life of that church at Colossae. And this is why I love how Paul writes this particular letter, because he's, he's highlighting the issue. He's highlighting that there are some of you who are being led astray by silly philo philosophical ideas uh, these simple spiritual things that are not helpful. Uh, and while he is speaking into those that are celebrating something that's not good, Paul then begins to like rethink and re-explain again how this all works together. So this morning, out of that same heart, this is what we're going to do together. You're kind of Colossae. I'm going to be Paul. 
and we're going to work our way through this. Let's remind each other again what really matters in all of this, what makes me a part of a community of faith. So here we go. Um, Paul in verse 13, he begins this way. You were dead in your sins. So Paul is reminding everyone, I want to remind everyone here, when you were dead in your sins, and I want to unpack this phrase. There is a moment in human history when Adam and Eve, human beings, opted to walk away from the living God. God created all things, and he said that this is amazing, this is good, this is perfect, this is right. This is what I long for you, this is what I hope for you, but if this is going to be a relationship, you have to lean back into this. You have to want what I have made for you to experience. And Adam and Eve opted to disobey God. They opted to do life their own way. They did the one thing that God asked them not to do, and the moment that they did this, sin and death entered the world, hence this phrase, you are dead in your sins. So there was a day in my life, and it's the moment I'm conceived, where I was dead in my sins. That when I was born in 1978, I was born opposing the one who has made me. I was born with a heart that was in rebellion against the one who has made me. I was born enemies of God. So when you're tucking your kids at night in, this, this sounds mean, but this is the, as truthful as I can be. When you're tucking your kids in, early in their life, you have to understand that there's something at work inside of them, that they are in opposition to the one who's made them. They are beautiful. They are amazing. They are all those things, but they're also an enemy of the one who has made them. They're also born with a heart that is wired to do the exact opposite of what God has created them to do and experience and live. We are born enemies of God. We are dead in our sins. Because of sin and death that entered in when Adam and Eve made this decision to walk away from God, everything that God made was fractured and ruined. Again, this big thematic conversation of being dead in our sins. My relationship with the living God is fractured. It's ruined because of this. And I'm dead in my sin because I am born in a position where I do not have a relationship with the living God. I'm born an enemy of him. People that I work with both inside this community of faith and outside this community of faith. It's curious when we begin down the road of a relationship with God. We joke about it, and the joke is often, and I see it at weddings and funerals, where people come into this physical space and they'll say humorously, I'm surprised that the walls didn't fall in around me. That is an expression of the fracturedness of our relationship with God. We are aware of who we are. We are aware that there is someone who is greater than me, and if I walk into this place, it might go sideways for me. We are a people who are uncomfortable with the idea that there is a God, and we are forever running away from him in all kinds of different ways. Our relationships with others, when I am dead in my sin, the relationships with others become deeply problematic. We are a people who are very selfish. We are incredibly self-centered. If you don't believe that's true, wait till you're married and you'll discover how selfish you really are. I am so grateful that through my wife, God has said, see, I'm right, you're selfish. Through my children, God says, see, I'm right, you're selfish. And it draws this to the surface very quickly. 
My earthly relationships will struggle when I do not have a living relationship with the living God because I will interact with those people the way I see fit. And often in our lives, it's a wake of brokenness in earthly relationships. We struggle, it's a fight, it's arguments, it's constant, kind of like nagging through it all. We're quick to leave relationships when it gets difficult. I'm dead in my sins, and this often defines my earthly reality. And then we move to our conversation about just who we are as a people. Never before, I shouldn't say it that way, but it at least appears that we are living through a unique moment in history where we do not like what we are. That we are deeply uncomfortable with the reflection in the mirror. We struggle with all kinds of layers of mental health. We struggle with fear and anxiety. We struggle with so many things connected to self. This is dead in our sins. I'm going to struggle with who I am and I'm going to constantly go through these cycles of rediscovery and rediscovery and three steps to do that and seven ways to improve yourself. Blah, blah, blah. And, the, and the frustrating space is when you do all that, five years later, you discover that you're the exact same person. You've just cut your hair differently. That the nails are done differently. That you wear different pants, whatever the case might be. But underneath it all, it's this continual uncomfortableness with who we are as a human being. I am dead in my sins. Other descriptions that are given to us by the scriptures, by God himself, it, in Jeremiah, it talks about how the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? You and I have a heart inside of us that compels us to act. And so often we believe, we believe ourselves and we're told to just be honest to who you are. And then you realize, I shouldn't have been honest to who I was. Because that brought in layers and layers and layers of brokenness that now for the rest of my life, I'm trying to patch this all back together again. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? God describes my heart as though it's a heart of stone. I'm dead in my sins. Paul in Romans 7, 8. It's probably the best parenting chapter for you as a parent. Where Paul is describing this dynamic in his life where there is a power of sin that's at work inside of him. And he describes the tension that you and I all know and feel and experience every day where he says, I know the thing that I should do. I know the thing that I want to do. But I find that there is another law at work in me compelling me to do the thing that I don't want to do. And now I'm doing the thing that I don't want to do. What a wretched man. Who am I? Who can save me from this dilemma? Mom and Dad, when you create spaces in your home for your kids that are just good God-honoring rules, we had very simple ones. They're not elaborate. It was like, don't punch your sister. Very simple rules. Don't, you know, simple things that honored the life and value of each other. And then there would be moments, daily, where they would break these good God-honoring rules. And this is the moment that you're looking for. You would say, well, why did you do that? And if your kids are honest, they might actually come to the place to say, I don't know. I just, I just did it. That's the moment where you get to explain to them dead in their sins. They know they're not supposed to bite their sister. They know they're not supposed to push them down the stairs. They know they're not supposed to do a whole bunch of things. And yet, they would do it. And I want them to know in that moment that there's a power of sin at work in them 
that they cannot conquer, that they cannot beat on their own, because they are, in fact, as Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, that I'm saying to you this morning, we are dead in our sins. I cannot stop myself from doing, acting. I'm compelled to do the thing that I do not want to do. I am dead in my sins. And then he moves past, this is where you were, church people. This is where a lot of them were. You were this, but now you're something different. It's true here. Some of you were dead in your sins, and now many of you in this room are in a different place. Some of us are still dead in our sins, but many of us, we are in a different place, and Paul describes you were this, but now you're this. And it's on the screen. This is kind of different lines from 6 through 13 in chapter 2. Now, God made you alive with Christ. Now, you have been forgiven all of your sins. Now, this charge of legal indebtedness over your life has been canceled. You were dead in your sins. This is before I knew Christ. But now, this is who you are. You were in this place. And now we're over here in this other column or in this other place, which kind of brings us to the space of like, well, what happened? When, wh how did this all fit together? When did we transition from one to the other? Well, it's all possible through this other part of the text, verses 14 and 15. He, speaking of God, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All that is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with God's good creation, God out of love is said in themselves, Father, Son, and Spirit, we will fix this. We will solve this. And Jesus goes to a cross. We celebrated this just a few weeks ago at Easter time. And there on the cross, through his death and then resurrection, Jesus exposes the foolishness of sin and death. He breaks its power. He robs it of its ability to ruin and rob and destroy fully. He does amazing things in this moment through his life and death and resurrection on the cross. And because Jesus willingly goes into death and God the Father raises him from the dead, you and I have an ability now. We have this possibility to transition from one place, dead in our sins, to these incredible titles where God says, alive with Christ, where sin is forgiven, and the cancel, he's canceled the legal charge of indebtedness over your life. Which means whether, in, in some of you, the ones of you here in this room that are still dead in your sins, you have an opportunity to live in a relationship with the living God. It's possible because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Those of us that are dead in our sins, you have the opportunity to live in relationship with others and it's done very differently because now Jesus is the one who directs our steps. Those of us that are still dead in our sins, we have the ability to then look in the mirror and grow in a complete comfortability with what you see in reflection because you'll understand who has made you, what has been done for you in the life that's possible in and through Jesus Christ. We can go from being dead in sin to alive with Christ because of what happened this first original Good Friday where Jesus dies on a cross and is raised from the dead. But there is an ingredient still missing in my life. And Paul speaks to, this is where you were, 
this is where you now are, you have transitioned from here to there through this little line in verse 12. It's through your faith. Through your faith. You were dead in sin, now alive in Christ, because of your faith. Because of your faith. There's a line in the Gospels that Jesus says numerous times in numerous places where this invitation to follow him. Follow me, follow me, follow me. He's able to say that because he knows what he's going to do through his death and then resurrection. But he invites us in to follow. And quickly following that, he says, you're going to deny yourself, you're going to take up a cross, and you're going to follow me. And I want to be very clear on this, on this little line that Jesus speaks to often in the Gospels. Most of us, if we're honest, we believe and we live as though we are in fact God. We would never say that publicly because we know that's not right. But when you break down your day, most of the decisions we make are driven by the fact that you are God and everyone around you should serve you. Everyone around you should call you what you want to be called. Everyone around you exists for your comfort. Everyone around you, if they are of no value to you, we move on quickly. We choose the path of least resistance. We believe wholeheartedly that we are, in fact, God. It's the same issue of Adam and Eve in the garden. I am smarter. I am wiser. I don't trust. I don't believe. I'm going to live and do my life my way. And Jesus is very clear. If you're going to follow me, it's going to start with a denying yourself. You're going to deny everything that you think is right about the world. You're going to deny yourself this. You're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow me. Or another phrase, it's you're going to obey what I say and it leads you into life because he is God. You're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And listen, faith is the driver of all of this. It is my faith that drives me to, to deny myself, my ideas and my thoughts and my wishes. It is my faith that drives me in that space of denying. It is my faith that drives me to take up my cross because I trust the one who has said so. It is my faith that compels me to follow. It is my faith in God where, where then God, and this is where this gets awesome, God does something in my life that only he can do. And this is, uh, again, woven into 6 through 13, and it's on the screen. My faith in Jesus God then brings me to fullness. My faith in Christ brings me to fullness. Paul is saying to the church in Colossians and saying to you this morning, Christ has paid for everything. He has done everything to deal with the problem of sin and death. He has done everything for you to enter in and experience all that God has provided for you, all that he longs for you. He's done it all. He's provided fully everything that you need to participate with him. I just need to respond in faith to this. Faith is the driver behind all of it. So when you read through a word of instruction that Jesus gives where he says, I want you to pray for your enemies, 
It's not a law that he's telling you. It requires faith to pray for my enemy. And it's in this action of faith to follow that God then does something significant in my life where ironically I begin to love my enemies. It's faith that says, do not look at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully. It is faith that says, do not pray particular ways. It is faith that says, do this. And when we walk in faith in this way, God then does something. He brings us to fullness in Christ. It is faith that drives the whole conversation so no one can boast. It's all a gift from the living God. When I respond in faith to who he is, it gets rid of the conversation of, yes, faith in Jesus, but also food laws, which we'll talk about next week. It gets rid of the opportunity to say, yes, faith in Jesus, but also, in this context, circumcision. Yes, faith in Jesus, but also be very careful what you do on Sabbath day, which were things that were added back into this equation of life in God. I want you to imagine going to the exhibition, and I'm going to invite Dana and team back. I want you to imagine going to the exhibition in August, and this would be amazing, where someone says to you, all right, Philip, someone has paid for you and your whole family to go do it all. We're like, well, that's a lot. It is faith to get in my car that's out here in Kingston Road and drive 15 minutes, 21, two lights, and then go to a, a, a lawn that charges you $20 to park for there for the day. And then for that person, like, it's all paid for. It's faith that moves me from my house to that person's lawn. And then with my whole family, my wife, my four kids, to walk up to the gate. And that person says, like, go on in. Okay, we'll go in. Can you imagine how great this day would be? And then you go in, and you're like, that smells delicious. And it's not the hot dogs that my mom has in the thermoses. I'm going to go and have that. Pick whatever you want. I'm speechless of the food options that you have. Funnel cake, like it's beautiful, like all free. And then you go to a line to a ride and you realize you can get on. It is faith driving every single one of those movements. Faith is driving every single one of those movements. That I am believing the language that someone has paid for all of this fully, that I can participate in it, but it requires faith to move me from where I was to now where I am. And when I do that, when faith is the driver, God brings me to fullness in Christ. I love the language in Colossians 2, and we'll end with this. When you, through your faith, trust Jesus, God makes you alive with Christ. He forgives all your sins, and he's canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness to the one who ultimately will judge our life. It's my faith in the one who has lived, who has died, who has been raised. It is my faith that moves me from a space of being dead in my sin to being alive with Christ, where then God brings me to fullness. There's nothing else that I need to do. It's not faith and. It's not faith and this or faith and that. It's just my faith in Christ drives all of it. And Paul is in a wonderful way 
speaking into something that's not true, and he's reminding everyone in the room, this is the equation. This is how it all works. You were here. Now we're here. We're here because Jesus did this here in the middle, and you walked through it in faith, and it's fully available to you because of that. I'm going to invite our ushers forward. We're going to pass out our communion elements this morning as we transition in this time, because this is a beautiful theme to talk about the very table that we're going to gather around here in a few moments. So I'm going to have a word of prayer. Our servers are going to serve. Dana and Tim are going to lead us in a song. I want you to just hold on to the cup and to the bread. And then in a moment, we'll come together and we'll celebrate this incredible reality together as a body of believers. Would you, would you pray with me this morning? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have provided everything fully for us to experience life and life to its full through your son's life and death and resurrection. God, this morning we would ask you just to remind us of that greatly. In your name we pray, amen.